Welcome to the Perspectives on Healthcare podcast, where members of the medical community from different roles, venues, and locations share their unique perspectives on quality healthcare, its future, and how to improve it. Now, from the Your Keynote Speaker Studio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, here is your host, Rob Oliver. Thank you, and I appreciate you being with me today. My perspective today comes from Lynn Yaffe. He is a researcher with an organization called EPR Technologies. He is from Maryland. He's a member of the Baby Boomer Generation. Uh, Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. You bet. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your role in healthcare, please. Well, I... um... Uh, let's say starting at college, I went to uh, Johns Hopkins University in uh, Baltimore, where I was raised. I majored in biophysics. Then uh, I went, I had early admission at the University of Maryland Medical School, went there, and then for postgraduate training, went to Columbia University in a pathology uh, residency. And I did research at the time there uh, at Columbia, as well at, at the time it was the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology which was sort of an independent arm of, of Huffman-LaRoche Pharmaceuticals. I think it's uh, decades ago since then it's been absorbed into the uh, company. And uh, uh, I was there in New York uh, and Roche for about six years, and I had obligated military service because I completed my training uh, before being drafted uh, for the Vietnam War. But the Vietnam War ended after I signed up, so... I ultimately had obligated service in the Navy, and they allowed me to go into uh, um, the Naval Medical Research Institute, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, across from NIH. And I spent uh, a number of years there doing combat casualty care research, uh, sepsis, uh, um, blood work, and um, wound healing work, that sort of thing. And... uh, in one sense, they gave you plenty of money, didn't ask uh, too many questions as long as you made some progress. And ultimately, uh, in spending time in the Navy, I, I spent a little time at the Department of Defense under the Director of Defense Research and Engineering, the Medical Department. Uh, I spent uh, time at the uh, Navy Surgeon General's Office on 23rd and C, uh, not far from the Vietnam Memorial. And I then went back to uh, what was called the Naval Medical Research and Development Command and controlled, uh, you know, maybe uh, in various years up to $100 million in um, program funding for Navy medical labs, uh, for universities and other contracts. And it was in that context that around 1995, I met Dr. Peter Saffer, uh, who had a, uh, an idea on how to save combat casualty care lives, who, uh, uh, who, in combat bleed out uh, very quickly on the battlefield, massive exsanguination due to injuries. And his idea was to not worry about resuscitating those casualties at the point of injury, but cool them down by inducing rapid, profound hypothermia uh, when it wasn't convenient to do CPR because they had lost so much blood, and then worry about um, uh, resuscitating them after you, you know, got to the nearest uh, uh, surgical group. So the basic idea was if you cooled the patient down rapidly enough, 
to a low temperature, not freezing, above freezing, uh, 5 to 15 degrees um, uh, centigrade Celsius, you know, about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, the brain doesn't need oxygen for a few hours or what oxygen you might have on board is sufficient. You don't need any respirations. You have no heartbeat, no brain waves. Uh, your vital organs are cooled. And you could uh, uh, get to a surgeon who could then do whatever necessary um, repairs uh, can be done so that you can uh, uh, give you adequate blood on uh, cardiopulmonary bypass to then rewarm you and then have a go at, at resuscitation through defibrillation. So originally, Dr. Saffer, who I should also recognize as he's considered the father of car cardiopulmonary resuscitation. He died in 2003. I worked with him from about, 2000, from about 1995 to 2003 and subsequently with the Saffer Center at the University of Pittsburgh on these efforts uh, that uh, if you can cool someone down, uh, you have a, another chance at resuscitating them when perhaps the initial cardiopulmonary resuscitation failed. Uh, originally, he called it temporary suspended animation. Now we call it EPR, emergency preservation and resuscitation, to follow like CPR, failed, then EPR. And so uh, eventually, after many years, we got the FDA to agree to a clinical trial, which was started a little more before the uh, COVID. And um, it's been on hold since COVID because both COVID patients on artificial lungs ECMO require a lot of blood, and what we do require a lot of blood. So our goal, and my goal, in memory of the dedication of Peter Saffer, the father of CPR, is to see if we can give people one more chance at survival when CPR fails. And, you know, CPR is not working uh, in roughly uh, 2,000 people per day in the United States alone. About 550 of those are trauma cases, and another 1,500 or so are um, sudden cardiac arrest causes. So there's a big market out there to uh, to hopefully give people one more chance at survival. Sure. So that's what I'm currently doing in my background. Okay. Um, so you mentioned the number of 2,000. Can you, is there any estimate as to what percentage that is as it relates to the effectiveness of CPR? Like, Well, um, uh, uh, CPR in trauma victims, meaning heart attack, I'm sorry, trauma victims meeting automobile accidents, uh, that sort of thing, gunshot wounds, as unfortunately there are many of those occurring uh, um, uh, recently, that today's standard, the success of resuscitating those patients, if there's a chance at resuscitating them, if they're not killed, you know, instantly, uh, is only 5%, uh, even at the best university uh, uh, trauma center. So the recovery is very, very poor. And if you could cool those patients down, perhaps you could do repairs and, and you'd get a better uh, survival, depending on the kinds of injuries they had. For cardiac arrests, those, let's say, 1,500 a day, roughly, um, if it's an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, your chances of survival are maybe 15, around 15 or 18 percent successful CPR. And a lot of that 15% depends on your location, where there's someone, a bystander trained in CPR, and there's a, uh, a simple-to-use defibrillator. If you're in a situation at home, perhaps, where your uh, uh, spouse or other loved one doesn't know CPR and there's no emergency defibrillator there, 
you know, you've got to wait for the paramedics perhaps if, uh, and that can take seven minutes. And so the chances of recovery are very slim. Uh, there is a, a number of patients who go into cardiac arrest in a hospital setting because they're there for some reason. Maybe they're there for a heart, a heart condition. Maybe they had one heart attack, didn't need CPR, but they're in the hospital and they have a repeat heart attack, this time need CPR. Your chances of survival there of having a successful CPR is about 40%. So out of hospital, 15%. In hospital, 40%. Trauma victims, 5% or less. So there's a big, I hate to use the word market, but there's a big opportunity for rapid, profound hypothermia to give all of these people one more chance at survival. It's very important, if I, if I could, uh, as much as it's unfortunate to, to relate it to this most recent horrendous school shooting, if, if they had been able to get in that room and, and kill the perpetrator, some of those children may have still had heartbeats. Uh, maybe they were losing blood, but maybe EPR in the near future, hopefully, could have saved them, where standard CPR might not have been uh, successful. So it's important to save oneself as you get older. You, you know, you're more susceptible to a sudden cardiac event. And we're all susceptible to, to trauma. Every time we drive, you don't know what ha may happen. And, uh, you know, the, the unfortunate events of shooting, of shootings seem to happen at, you know, places that we frequent all the time. Sure. Shopping malls, supermarkets, churches. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really, uh, yeah. I don't want to get into the politics, but that's an opportunity for EPR, unfortunately. But the right. biggest opportunity is, is sudden cardiac arrest, really. Got it. Okay. Well, um, you've given us a lot of information, and we're actually um, almost halfway through our interview, and I've oh, I've got five five more questions for you. Sorry. So I'll keep oh, it no, short. It, it's quite okay. So, uh, what does quality healthcare mean to you? Well, with my military background, sort of guides my concept of quality healthcare, and that means regular checkups. You know, depending on your age, even if you're feeling fine, let's do some blood work. Let's have, you know, preventive medicine, so to speak, without concern about the cost of that. You know, being able to go to a physician of your choice for a routine preventive care. You know, yes, there might be a minimal copay as there is with Medicare, um, but that kind of care. Not concerned about how are you going to pay for routine preventive care, the ability to go to that. And if the doctor of your choice feels there's something that needs further help, the ability to be referred to a specialty center, a teaching hospital, university center, tertiary care center, where again, you don't have to worry about the cost, but you can get the kind of diagnostics and care that you need, whatever uh, therapy, whether it's surgery or medical care, drugs that are needed, minimal cost. That's quality health care. Access and then appropriate, cost-effective uh, um, uh, uh, follow-through without concern about that. Right. So, I mean, I hear you saying, to just to use the old phrase, I, the ounce of prevention that's worth a pound of cure. In which, Absolutely. if you are proactive in in helping people with their um, right. with their medical situation, then you're able to to be ahead of it, and your the treatment costs are going to be less. On, because you're catching things earlier than they are if things are going to be. That's true. Yeah. Okay. That's very true. Can you give me an example 
of quality healthcare, which I, I mean, I think you've kind of done that already, but you know, is there something else that you would say, this is a great example? Well, um, uh, let's say at my age and I have some relatives who are similar age men, you know, they routinely uh, go for colonoscopy and they also have their prostate, uh, which is common in older men, uh, check PSA levels. And if the level is high, you don't have to worry about getting uh, uh, prostate biopsies, all part of preventive care. And I've had that experience, uh, you know, during the last five years, colonoscopy, not worrying about the cost, going to a quality person, uh, slightly elevated PSA where I had, uh, you know, 13 needle biopsies of the prostate done, all negative, but I'm not concerned about it. Uh, you know, I see my, you know, general practitioner um, every six months, whether I'm having any pain or any complaint at all, just to have the blood work done. And that's my image of quality healthcare. Could, what do you wish people understood about your role in healthcare? I think people should understand that. Uh, um, Research is important, obviously. Research is the future of cancer therapy, Alzheimer therapy, anti-aging treatment, uh, genetic, uh, you know, CRISPR manipulations. Um, and so they should look positively at research, at supporting research, at uh, encouraging politicians to always expand the budget of NIH, NIH funding uh, uh Fortunately, seems to go up every year. Uh, NIH supports, uh, you know, university research, contract research at companies. That's important for the future, of course. And to, uh, I always like to encourage people to always ask your physician if you have a particular illness and perhaps the treatment isn't going as well as you expected. Ask about clinical trials, ask about what's available experimentally. There are government um, uh, sites on the internet, uh, you know, that if you put type into Google, you know, clinical trials, uh, NIH or something like that, they post what clinical trials are going on. And depending on the physician you're seeing and where they are, you know, they, they may not necessarily recommend that, but, uh, People should really take an interest in their own health care. And now, because of uh, Internet searches, always search your symptoms, your complaints. Don't go overboard with wondering that you've got the first, the worst possible thing. Sure. But it, it leads into questions that you can ask of your physician. I think yeah. that's very important. Be knowledgeable in your situation. Absolutely. You've got to, knowledge is power. And um, if you're going to empower yourself, it starts with, educating yourself about what's going on. Absolutely. And, I agree completely. And I, I will just, okay, when you were talking about research and the importance of research, it did make me smile. Uh, just a, a month ago, I did a an interview marathon where I talked to patients about their experiences in healthcare. And I had a woman that came on who has Crohn's disease, and she was very upset about the fact that there was a lot more money going into cancer research than there was going into Crohn's research. And she doesn't have cancer, she has Crohn's, so she feels that the money needs to be redirected. So I'm sure that when it comes, it, it, the, the research is extremely important, uh, although the way that the pie gets divvied up, um, you're not going to always have 
um, complete consensus on how that money needs to go. It's right. It, there's there's never enough for all the uh, interests in research. Exactly. But uh, you know, I would have encouraged that woman, as you perhaps did, that uh, you know, every disease I think uh, has a foundation, and that foundation is very important in uh, interacting with the lead researchers in that field. It's a there are always places where you can contribute. And they have the uh, national experts that they talk to about what should be funded and how they should use money and also how to appropriate lobby, uh, appropriately lo- lobby Congress to enhance NIH's budget or, uh, or other um, uh, possible um, avenues of support. So yeah. I, I uh, uh, feel strongly that patients should all, you know, uh, get involved with uh, – funding, research funding for their particular uh, illness or chronic illness and their foundations out there that's more than willing to help you guide uh, that uh, initiative. Yeah. And um, she was over in the UK, so I'm not sure exactly what the situation is over there and how to to guide her with advocacy. But I think Mm -hmm. that that you're right. We all need to be self-advocates, taking a look at the issues that we are most passionate about and the issues that affect us most of all. what excites you about the future of healthcare? Well, um, let me say from a political standpoint, I'm a strong advocate of Medicare for all, you know, regardless of age, uh, um, controlling, in a sense, not controlling, but, but keeping the cost of drugs uh, effective, uh, the government being able to negotiate uh, price contracts drugs. I mean, that's very important, uh, you know, for the delivery of health care to take the burden off of individuals about how they're going to pay for things. But what really excites me is the advances that are made in um, cancer therapy, particularly in uh, immune therapy tailored to your particular cancer through uh, genetic engineering or CRISPR research, um, uh, human genetic engineering. I'm not talking about, you know, making super soldiers. I'm talking about curing diseases or making people much more resistant to. And what's most fascinating for me, and I read all the time, is anti-aging research. Some of the, you know, uh, what is it, Google and um, uh, in particular, you know, they have an arm now for anti-aging research. NIH has a uh, 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 gerontology, anti-aging uh, uh, institute, and, you know, uh, flatworms and little tiny creatures, they can extend the life of those little uh, creatures, uh, you know, five to tenfold by some genetic manipulations. And what's particularly interesting, uh, I'm in no way an authority in this, but some of the genes that are manipulated in those small uh, worm-like animals human beings have the same genes Hmm. that are probably involved in our aging. I'm also fascinated by um, the uh, microbiome in your intestines and Hmm. the effects on the particular organisms that you bear and how that can influence uh, uh, mental wellness, uh, uh, obesity, and a number of other diseases. We're just really scratching the surface in that. I was just reading this morning a paper having to do with uh, um, proline metabolism in humans and how that can affect 
depression. And, you know, beef has a lot of proline in it. And, uh, you know, a lot of the foods that we eat have the amino acid proline. And depending on how your gut metabolizes that and your, and your plasma level for proline, they've discovered uh, several institutions that that can have an impact on depression. So uh, those kinds of new frontiers are what fascinates me in anti-aging in nutrition and, uh, and wellness through uh, what you eat and um, uh, fascinated by things like um, fecal transplants. I don't know if you've heard about that. Uh, I have. And it's, it yeah. is something it's that is fascinating. A, there's a, um, yeah. As much as um, there's part of it that is disgusting from a, um, right, there's also, it's, it's, you know, there's, a, there's another, form. yep. Um, there's another part of it that is, um, is indeed fascinating. Listen, we've got about, um, we're actually over time, but it's okay. I'm um, sorry. It, oh, no, it's not a problem at all. Um, in about 30 seconds or so, can you tell me what is one thing medical professionals can start doing today to improve the quality of healthcare? Well, uh, I, I think they can be strong advocates, as I said before, strong advocates for universal healthcare and controlling the cost of drugs and encouraging their patients for preventive care. I think that's most important, preventive care. And through medical organizations, which they, uh, you know, physicians should support those organizations to lobby Congress to, uh, uh, to do those things, preventive care and controlling costs and, and making it free for individuals. That's what I uh, would support along with uh, being an advocate for research. There you go. Wonderful. Hey, Lynn, thank you so much for being with me today. I My appreciate, pleasure. I appreciate you sharing. I had, what you're doing is fascinating. And um, I appreciate you and I appreciate your perspective on healthcare. Thanks for listening to Perspectives on Healthcare. Visit perspectivesonhealthcare.com to learn more about Rob Oliver or to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If this podcast was valuable, we'd appreciate a review on iTunes. Or if you tell a friend or coworker about the show, that would be helpful too. Join us again next time for more Perspectives on Healthcare.